sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. I am your host, Al Reidenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing that beloved seasonal classic, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Uh, We're not opening with the usual chit-chat this time, as Mrs. Carswell is currently off visiting her mother for the holiday, but she uh, did pre-record this episode with me, so you'll be hearing from her. Uh, Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive monthly rewards, including short bonus episodes. Um, We're also not going to be closing our show with uh, the usual spiel about that, but I do want to thank a few new subscribers. Sissy Strange, Anne-Marie Tagani, Jen Kelleher, and uh, Peter Raftos. And also thank you to Keziah Walker for upping his pledge and to Rob RZ350 for the kind review. I uh, understand it's difficult in these times for everyone to pledge, but we are very grateful for those who've given and uh, for those who will soon give as they find themselves inevitably overpowered by those wild spirits of holiday charity. and the bad things that happen to them is the subject of our discussion today, or less discussion, actually, and more uh, story time, as this episode will consist mainly of readings of rhymed stories of misbehaving children and the tragic consequences they face, that particular genre of instructive children's literature known as cautionary tales. Particularly popular in the 19th century, books such as these evolved alongside the notion of a child-centered Christmas celebration. They became popular holiday gifts, uh, now that children seem to require them, and not-so-subtle reminders of parental expectations. Because of this, and the dangerous notion that everyone's a child at Christmas, as they say, I thought this would make a good seasonal offering, especially for our listeners who may identify uh, particularly with the uh, tragic fates described in this subgenre. Uh, Mrs. Carswell and I will, by the way, be trading off uh, this time around on the quoted passages, as uh, that is the bulk of our show, um, and I hope the change won't be too unsettling. So uh, cozy up with some hot cocoa, slip into your fireproof pajamas, surely they're fireproof, and enjoy a bit of instructive schadenfreude with your Bone and Sickle family. You'll get nothing for Christmas. 
course there's a gothic version of Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Uh, this is from a 2019 album called, naturally, Possessed Children, Creepy Nursery Rhymes, in case you're interested. Um, the reason for its inclusion is that its lyric, at least, was penned by the first poet and novelist we'll discuss, Jane Taylor, who included the verse simply as the star in her 1806 publication of children's poems, Rhymes for the Nursery. This was a follow-up to her first book in the genre from 1800, written with her sister Anne, Original Poems for Infant Minds. As the title suggests, the notion of writing books geared towards children was, around 1800, one that still called for a bit of uh, explanation. Though all were written with some sort of didactic intent, not all the poems included in the book attempt to teach through a grim, cautionary example. Though there are a few fitting in this category, such as... Playing with fire. Mama, a little girl I met, had such a scar I can't forget. All down her arms and neck and face, I could not bear to see the place. Poor little girl, and don't you know, the shocking trick that made her so? T'was all because she went and did a thing her mother had forbid. For once, when nobody was by her, the silly child would play with fire. And long before her mother came, her pinafore was all in flame. In vain she tried to put it out, until her clothes were burnt about. And then she suffered ten times more, all over with a dreadful sore. For many months before it was cured, most shocking tortures she endured. And even now, when passing by her, you see what tis to play with fire. Another example in the genre, published in 1807, also offers a bit of an explainer in its title, The Daisy, or... Cautionary Stories in Verse, adapted to ideas of children from four to eight years old. It's by the British writer Elizabeth Turner, but I'm afraid there's really little biographical information about her out there. But the uh, book does include its own tale of the dangers naughty children confront around fires. Dangerous Sport Poor Peter was burned by the poker one day, when he made it look pretty and red. For the beautiful sparks made him think, it's fine play to lift it as high as his head. But somehow it happened, his finger and thumb were terribly scorched by the heat. And he screamed out loud for his mother to come and stamped on the floor with his feet. Now, if Peter had minded his mother's command, his fingers would not have been sore. And he promised again, as she bound up his hand to play with hot pokers no more. A number of you will recognize this opening of the 1998 opera by British punk cabaret artist The Tiger Lilies, and therefore the next book we'll touch on. This show and the album is called Shock-Headed Peter. Uh, shock here as in a wild shock of hair. It's uh, their translation for the 1854 children's book by Heinrich Hoffmann, Der Struvenpeter, Merry Tales and Funny Pictures for Good Little Folks. 
Struvelpeter, meaning more or less uh, slovenly or ungroomed Peter. Um, whimsically illustrated by Hoffman himself, the iconic and monstrous Struvelpeter himself appears on the cover, sporting wildly unkempt hair and grotesquely long nails. Within the pages of this archetypal collection of cautionary tales, children who play with matches, refuse to eat, suck their thumbs, torment animals, or commit other childish misdemeanors meet ghastly fates. Hoffman created the volume as a Christmas gift for his three-year-old son, with simple text interwoven with his drawings in a way specifically geared to a young reader's developmental level. He consciously chose to use his own endearingly awkward drawings rather than hire an illustrator as he found them more childlike. And one of these is an angelic Christ child, the German gift bringer, depicted on the opening page along with text making clear that the book was intended as a Christmas gift earned by good behavior. Der Struvelpeter has enjoyed continuous reprintings and translations into 35 languages, including one by Mark Twain, and it has frequently been adapted to stage, reconceived by various illustrators and comic artists, and made into a 1955 film, rendering the story as a ballet, uh, one which I'll be uh, sharing with our Patreon supporters this month. Well known to most all German speakers and to those outside that culture as That Scary German Children's Book, the publication's legacy is remembered in a dedicated museum, pub, and memorial fountain in Hoffman's hometown of Frankfurt. And I'm sure there are keychains and shot glasses, too. The inspiration for the book came through Hoffman's observations of his own child and dissatisfaction with contemporary books intended for children. His focus on simple but outlandish stories that engaged children's imagination, because children were less delicate then, as well as his simplified design choices based on the child's mode of perception, all arose from his interest in psychology. His uh, professional interest, that is, as this was his field of study and occupation. Despite any conclusions we may today draw about the uh, cruel tragedies portrayed in the children's book, Hoffman's philosophy as a psychologist was quite progressive and compassionate in its day, and he was particularly interested in bettering the treatment of those held in prisons as criminally insane. Toward that end, he founded Frankfurt's Institute for the Epileptic and Insane, as it was called, uh, housed in a magnificent neo-Gothic edifice where Hoffman and his family also resided. The building was popularly known as the Irrenschloss, or Madman's Castle, which sounds a good deal more dark and gothic than progressive, perhaps, and it was there that Der Struvelpeter was composed. So, let's hear a few poems from its pages. The story of Augustus, who would not have any soup. Augustus was a chubby lad, 
fat ruddy cheeks Augustus had, and everybody saw with joy the plump and hearty healthy boy. He ate and drank as he was told, and never let his soup get cold. But one day, one cold winter's day, he screamed out, Take the soup away! Oh, take the nasty soup away! I won't have any soup today! Next day, now look, the picture shows how lank and lean Augustus grows. Yet, though he feels so weak and ill, the naughty fellow cries out still. Not any soup for me, I say. Oh, take the nasty soup away. I won't have any soup today. The third day comes. Oh, what a sin to make himself so pale and thin. Yet when the soup is put on table, he screams as loud as he is able. Not any soup for me, I say. Oh, take the nasty soup away. I won't have any soup today. Look at him, now the fourth day's come. He scarcely weighs a sugar plum. He's like a little bit of thread. And on the fifth day, he was dead. The Dreadful Story of Pauline and the Matches Mama and Nurse went out one day and left Pauline alone at play. Around the room she gaily sprung, clapped her hands and danced and sung. Now, on the table, close at hand, a box of matches chanced to stand, and kind Mama and Nurse had told her that if she touched them, they would scold her. But Pauline said, Oh, what a pity, for when they burn, it is so pretty. They crackle so and spit and flame, and Mama often does the same. I'll just light a match or two, as I've often seen my mother do. When Mince and Mounce, the pussycats, heard this, they held up their paws and began to hiss. Meow, they said, meow, meow, you'll burn to death if you do so. Your parents have forbidden you, you know. But Pauline would not take advice. She lit a match. It was so nice. It crackled so. It burned so clear, exactly like the picture here. Of course, there are illustrations of the match and the cats and so forth throughout. She jumped for joy and ran about, and was too pleased to put it out. When Mince and Mounce, the little cats, saw this, they said, oh, naughty, naughty, miss, and stretched their claws and raised their paws. Tis very, very wrong, you know. Meow, 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 meow. You will be burnt if you do so. Our mother has forbidden you, you know. Now see, oh see, what a dreadful thing. The fire has caught her apron string. Her apron burns, her arms, her hair. She burns all over, everywhere. Then how the pussycats did mew. What else, poor pussies, could they do? They screamed for help, t'was all in vain. So then they said, we'll scream again. Make haste, make haste, meow, meow. She'll burn to death, we told her so. 
so, she was burnt with all her clothes, and arms, and hands, and eyes, and nose, till she had nothing more to lose, except her little scarlet shoes. And nothing else but these was found among her ashes on the ground. And when the good cats sat beside the smoking ashes, how they cried, Meow, 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 what will Mama and Nursie do? Their tears ran down their little cheeks so fast, they made a little pond at last. And there's a little picture of the crying cats, smoldering ashes, and a pond of tears. The Story of Little Sakatam. One day Mama said, Conrad dear, I must go out and leave you here, but mind now Conrad what I say, don't suck your thumb while I'm away. The great tall tailor always comes to little boys who suck their thumbs, and ere they dream what he's about, he takes his great sharp scissors out and cuts their thumbs clean off, and then, you know, they never grow again. Mama had scarcely turned her back. The thumb was in, alack, alack. The door flew open, in he ran, the great long red-legged scissor man. Oh, children, see, the tailor's come and caught out little Suck-a-Thumb. Snip, snap, snip, the scissors go, and Comrade cries out, oh, oh, oh. Snip, snap, snip, they go so fast that both his thumbs are off at last. Mama comes home. There Conrad stands and looks quite sad and shows his hands. Ah, oh, said Mama, I knew he'd come to naughty little suck a thumb. Though children's books weren't perhaps Hoffman's priority, he was coaxed into writing and illustrating a couple follow-ups. In 1854, there was one called Bastian the Lazy Bones, which follows an older youth, a student, as he learns comic lessons, encountering individuals uh, representing various uh, professions and walks of life. And then there was also 1851's King Nutcracker and Poor Reinhold, which uh, borrows from E.T.A. Hoffman, uh, the other Hoffman, the gothic uh, fantasy writer. Uh, borrows from his uh, Nutcracker story, and uh, also inserts animals from Noah's Ark and a few walk-ons by characters from uh, the uh, Struvelpeter book. I don't believe either of these were terribly successful, and I haven't even read them through, honestly, but his uh, original publications certainly went on to inspire all manner of imitations, which uh, scholars uh, call Struvelpeteriata, but uh, I think I'll just keep calling them knockoffs. A number of these were published in Germany, there was a Struve Lisa in 1890, which has uh, gone into a number of reprints because it does provide a female title character. And in uh, 1902, a Struve Paar, or uh, that is a Struve Pair couple, and the whole Struve clan, as the title has it. Some of these were authorized, as 
where some uh, of the early knockoffs published in England, like 1851's A Laughter Book for Little Folk, advertised as a companion to Struvelpeter. And this one was uh, pirated by an American publisher in Philadelphia who created a whole Slovenly Peter series, beginning with one titled Simple Hans, the second part of Slovenly Peter. And in New York, the McLaughlin brothers, publishers of many of the first board games and specialists in color printing of children's books, created their own Little Slovenly Peter series in the uh, 1880s and 90s with titles including uh, Sammy Tickletooth, Johnny Sliderleg, Little Jacob, Lazy Charlotte, Tom the Thief, The Dirty Child, Heedless Harry, and of course, Little Jacob and How He Became Fat. And this doesn't include satirical parodies, which were particularly popular in England, like the uh, political Struvelpeter from 1899, the Egyptian Struvelpeter from 1896, and everyone's favorite, the World War II era satire, Der Struvel Hitler. I don't know to what extent the copyright held by Hoffman's German publishers was or could be enforced, but strangely, a lot of these credited Hoffman himself as author unbeknownst to him, I'm sure. And one of these is uh, 1911's Slovenly Betsy, which contains a couple entertaining pieces we can hear. Phoebe Ann, the proud girl. This Phoebe Ann was a very proud girl. Her nose had always an upward curl. She thought herself better than others beside, and beat even the peacock himself in pride. She thought the earth was so dirty and brown that never by chance would she look down, and she held her head in the air so high that her neck began stretching by and by. It stretched, and it stretched, and it grew so long that her parents thought something must be wrong. It stretched and stretched, and they soon began to look up with fear at their Phoebe Ann. They prayed her to stop her upward gaze, but Phoebe kept on in her old, proud ways, until her neck had grown so long and spare that her head was more than her neck could bear. And it bent to the ground like a willow tree, and brought down the head of this proud Phoebe. Until whenever she went out a walk to take, the boys would shout, Here comes a snake! Her head got to be so heavy to drag on that she had to put it on a little wagon. So don't, my friends, hold your head too high, or your neck may stretch too by and by. The Crybaby. <laughs> oh, why are you always so bitterly crying? You surely will make yourself blind. What reason on earth for such sobbing and sighing? I pray, can you possibly find? There's no real sorrow, there's nothing distressing to make you thus grieve and lament. Ah, oh, no, you are just at this moment possessing whatever should make you content. Now do, my dear daughter, give over this weeping. Such was a kind mother's advice. 
but all was in vain, for you see she is still keeping her handkerchief up to her eyes. But now she removes it, and oh, she discloses a countenance full of dismay, for she certainly feels, or at least she supposes, her eyesight is going away. She is not mistaken. Her sight is departing. She knows it and sorrows the more. <laughs> then rubs her sore eyes to relieve them from smarting and makes them still worse than before. <laughs> and now the poor creature is cautiously crawling and feeling her way all around. And now from their sockets her eyeballs are falling. See, there they are down on the ground. My children, from such an example take warning, and happily live while you may. And say to yourselves when you rise in the morning, I'll try to be cheerful today. One more book inspired by Der Struvelpeter that became iconic in German culture was Max and Moritz, A Tale of Seven Boyish Pranks written and illustrated in 1865 by Wilhelm Busch. Its uh, text, which is interspersed almost comic strip style with sequential drawings, follows these two uh, young miscreants as they cause the neighbor's chickens to strangle themselves and then steal the birds as they roast, load their uh, pompous and pious teacher's pipe with gunpowder, put beetles in their uncle's bed, and saw the timbers of a bridge so that the local tailor is dumped into the river, and while attempting to steal sweets from a baker, end up tumbling into a vat of dough and end up as baked goods themselves as the baker shoves them into the oven. Somehow they survive all this, but meet their fate in a seventh prank, which we'll get to in a minute. This uh, story has been adopted for film a number of times, mainly in animation, including a charming 1941 stop-motion version. More significant, perhaps, was Max and Moritz's role in the evolution of comics as a direct influence on the early American comic strip, The Katzenjammer Kids, a tale of two similarly mischievous German-American boys that ran in Hearst newspapers from 1897 all the way to 1949. But its life wasn't limited to those 52 years, as one of the artists claiming ownership of the characters launched a parallel version of the story in the 1930s, The Captain and the Kids, and this spawned a series of animated theatrical shorts in the late 30s, and even a brief foray into Saturday morning cartoons in the 1970s. The Captain and the Kids even sold Pepto-Bismol in the late 60s. Pepto-Bismol, the good-tasting medicine with coating action. Well, we didn't got the spanking. But we did got the fight. Smart, Alex. Now you get some of our medicine. But back to Max and Moritz and how they finally do meet their fate. And uh, this poem is called The Final Prank. Max and Moritz, I grow sick when I think of your last trick. Why must these two scalawags cut those gashes in the bags? And there's a drawing of sacks of grain that have been cut open. See, the farmer on his back carries corn off in a sack. Scarce has he begun to travel when the corn runs out like gravel. All at once he stops and cries, Darn it, I see where it lies. Ha! With what delighted eyes Max and Moritz he espies. Then he opens wide his sack, shoves the robes into the pack, 
It grows warm with Max and Maurice, for to mill the farmer hurries. Master Miller, hello, man. Grind me that as quick as you can. In with him. Each wretched flopper headlong goes into the hopper. As the farmer turns his back, he hears the mill go creaky-crack. And then there's an illustration of the bits of grain on the ground. Here you see the bits post-mortem, just as fate was pleased to sort them. Master Miller's ducks with speed gobbled up the coarse grain feed. And you see a drawing of a little bits of boy dissipating to the ducks' gullets. You'll notice that along the way, the emphasis of these stories seems to have shifted from the grim consequences to the fun of mischief. Eventually, seeing the cautionary tale give way to a very different form, the world of Dennis the Menace and the Little Rascals and so on. But there was one last writer who squeezed a bit more fun from the genre around the turn of the 20th century. This was Hilaire Belloc, who was born to a wealthy family in France and moved with him as a toddler to England. Along with his verses for children, he was a historian and well-known commentator on issues of the day. He's also a friend of H.G. Wells and George Bernard Shaw and on an occasional collaborator with G.K. Chesterton, who's the creator of the Father Brown detective series. Like Chesterton, he was a deeply religious man, rejecting, however, the Anglicism of his adopted home in favor of his uh, native Catholicism, which he insisted, rather controversially, that this was what rightfully defined the culture of Europe. But his children's books were hardly the product of a religious scold. Actually, they represented a humorous, satirical take on earlier Victorian children's literature. The first of these, published in 1896 and whimsically illustrated by his friend Basil T. Blackwood, was The Bad Child's Book of Beasts. Uh, The concept is explained in a poem called, appropriately, Introduction. I call you bad, my little child, upon the title page, because a manner rude and wild is common at your age. Do not as evil children do, who on the slightest grounds will imitate the kangaroo with wild, unmeaning bounds. Do not as children badly bred, who eat like little hogs, and when they have to go to bed will whine like puppy dogs, who take their manners from the ape, their habits from the bear, indulge the loud, unseemly jape, and never brush their hair, but so control your actions then your friends may all repeat, This child is dainty as the cat, and as the owl discreet. Then there is uh, this, for instance. (laughs) The lion. The lion, the lion, he dwells in the waste. He has a big head and a very small waist. But his shoulders are stark, and his jaws, they are grim. And a good little child will not play with him. Extinct animals also are not excluded. The dodo. The dodo. 
Dodo used to walk around and take the sun and air. The sun yet warms his native ground. The Dodo is not there. The voice which used to squawk and squeak is now forever dumb. Yet you may see his bones and beak all in the museum. In 1897, Bella came out with a follow-up, More Beasts for Worse Children, which was so eagerly anticipated that the publisher had trouble filling orders. We'll hear just one from that volume as it illustrates the uh, over-educated, pedantic persona the writer uses to lecture his uh, young readers. In it, he employs an absurdly out-of-place Greek term, tuptophilist, and it's not even a real word, but one he coins from uh, Greek roots meaning, one who loves to strike or uh, hit. The porcupine. What? Would you slap a porcupine? Unhappy child, desist. Alas, that any friend of mine should turn a tuptophilist. To strike the creature, to strike the meanest and the least of creatures, is a sin. How much more bad to beat a beast with prickles on its skin. The uh, finest example of the genre we've been examining is Belloc's 1907 book, Cautionary Tales for Children, designed for the admonition of children between the ages of 8 and 14 years. It's chock full of flawed children meeting extraordinary fates. The settings are full of nannies and cooks and footmen, evokes a sort of doom-filled upper-class world similar to that populated by Edward Gorey's characters, which makes it unsurprising that Gorey himself chose to illustrate a version of the book, which was published uh, posthumously in 2002. So uh, let's hear a few of the poems now as the uh, final example of uh, the genre under consideration. Franklin Hyde who caroused in the dirt and was corrected by his uncle. His uncle came on Franklin Hyde carousing in the dirt. He shook him hard from side to side and hit him till it hurt, exclaiming with a final thud, take that abandoned boy for playing with disgusting mud as though it were a toy. Moral. From Franklin Hyde's adventure learn to pass your leisure time in cleanly merriment and turn from mud and ooze and slime and every form of nastiness. But on the other hand, children in ordinary dress may always play with sand. Henry King, who chewed bits of string and was early cut off in dreadful agonies. The chief defect of Henry King was chewing little bits of string. At last he swallowed some which tied itself in ugly knots inside. Physicians of the utmost fame were called at once, but when they came, they answered as they took their fees, there is no cure for this disease. Henry will very soon be dead. 
parents stood beside his bed, lamenting his untimely death, when Henry, with his latest breath, cried, Oh, my friends, be warned by me that breakfast, dinner, lunch, and tea are all the human frame requires. And with that, the wretched child expires. Rebecca, who slammed doors for fun and perished miserably. A trick that everyone abhors in little girls is slamming doors. A wealthy banker's little daughter who lived in Palace Green Bayswater, by name Rebecca Offendort, was given to this furious sport. She would deliberately go and slam the door like Billy O to make her Uncle Jacob start. She was not really bad at heart, but only rather rude and wild. She was an aggravating child. It happened that a marble bust of Abraham was standing just above the door this little lamb had carefully prepared to slam. And down it came, it knocked her flat, it laid her out, she looked like that, referring to a drawing of her sprawled on the ground. Her funeral sermon, which was long and followed by a sacred song, mentioned her virtues, it is true, but dwelt upon her vices, too, and showed the dreadful end of one who goes and slams the doors for fun. The children who were brought to hear the awful tale from far and near were much impressed, and in they swore they never more would slam the door, as often they had done before. George, who played with a dangerous toy and suffered a catastrophe of considerable dimensions. When George's grandmama was told that George had been as good as gold, she promised in the afternoon to buy him an immense balloon. And so she did. But when it came, it got into candle flame, and being of a dangerous sort, exploded with a loud report. The lights went out, the windows broke, the room was filled with reeking smoke, and in the darkness shrieks and yells were mingled with electric bells and falling masonry and groans and crunching as of broken bones and dreadful shrieks when, worst of all, the house itself began to fall. It tottered, shuddering to and fro, then crashed into the street below, which happened to be Saville Row. When help arrived, among the dead were Cousin Mary, Little Fred, the footman, both of them, the groom, the man that cleaned the billiard room, the chaplain, and the still room maid, and I am dreadfully afraid that Monsieur Champignon, the chef, will now be permanently deaf. And both his aides are much the same. While George, who was in part to blame, received, you will regret to hear, a nasty lump behind the ear. The moral is that little boys should not be given dangerous toys.
Jim, who ran away from his nurse and was eaten by a lion. There was a boy whose name was Jim. His friends were very good to him. They gave him tea and cakes and jam and slices of delicious ham and chocolate with pink inside and little tricycles to ride and read him stories through and through and even took him to the zoo. But there it was the dreadful fate befell him, which I now relate. You know, at least you ought to know, for I have often told you so, that children are never allowed to leave their nurses in a crowd. Now this was Jim's especial foible. He ran away when he was able, and on this inauspicious day he slipped his hand and ran away. He hadn't gone a yard when, bang, with open jaws a lion sprang, and hungrily began to eat the boy beginning at his feet. Now just imagine how it feels when first your toes and then your heels and then by gradual degrees your shins and ankles, calves and knees are slowly eaten bit by bit. No wonder Jim detested it. No wonder that he shouted, hi! The honest keeper heard his cry, though very fast he almost ran to help the little gentleman. Ponto, he ordered as he came, for Ponto was the lion's name. Ponto, he cried with angry frown, let go, sir, down, sir, put it down. The lion made a sudden stop. He let the dainty morsel drop and slunk reluctant to his cage, snarling with disappointed rage. But when he bent him over Jim, the honest keeper's eyes were dim. The lion, having reached his head, the miserable boy was dead. When nurse informed his parents they were more concerned than I can say, his mother, as she dried her eyes, said, well, it gives me no surprise. He would not do as he was told. His father, who was self-controlled, bade all the children round attend to James's miserable end and always keep a hold of nurse for fear of finding something worse. Oh, uh, uh, terrible stuff. Of course, the genre of the cautionary tale isn't restricted to uh, children's literature. Uh, terrible adult villains meeting well-deserved and terrible fates is uh, hardly uncommon in various kinds of storytelling. But certain genres have prioritized uh, didactic purpose alongside uh, entertainingly lurid depictions of fate. Uh, for instance, the ostensibly educational early exploitation films of the 1930s and 40s, all those films with titles like Child Bride, She Should Have Said No, and of course, Reefer Madness. In this film, you will see the ease with which this vicious plan can be grown. And in the spirit of adult cautionary tales, perhaps, and certainly in the spirit of Christmas, we'll uh, now close with a bit of song. It's a uh, shockingly misguided 2006 British public service spot uh, created by uh, MTV, of all things. It's a warning about holiday drunk driving set to a festive tune.
Dance. 